Welcome, friends. It's May 26th, and this is the One-Year Bible Tour Guide, where we read progressively each day, making our way through the Bible with passages from the Old and New Testaments, as well as readings from Psalms and Proverbs. God willing, it will result in a veritable feast that will lift your spirit, enlighten your understanding, give perspective to your vision, fortify your trust, renew your mind, and give wisdom for your daily decisions. My name is David McAdam, pastor and Bible teacher at New Life Community Church in Concord, Massachusetts, and I am happy to serve as your tour guide and point out important landmarks on our journey that you won't want to miss as we whiz by. We are in the book of 2 Samuel and come to an account that reminds me of the mercy shown to us because of a covenant that was made on our behalf by outside parties. Because of this arrangement, you and I, who recognize our condition, that when it comes to having a right standing with God, that we of ourselves have no leg to stand on. We were dropped at the hands of another and made lame on both feet. But because of this new covenant, we are granted royal privileges with not only access to the king, but we have a place at his table, a refuge from the wrathful punishment due our kind. It is the story of Mephibosheth. So let's pick up our reading in the Old Testament in the 10th book of the Bible we are reading, which is the book of 2 Samuel, and we are starting with chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servants do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Chapter 10 
After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, twenty thousand foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with one thousand men, and the men of Tob, twelve thousand men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people, and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of seven hundred chariots and forty thousand horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites any more. Chapter 11 In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? 
And David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey, and why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubsheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This concludes our reading from today's portion of the Old Testament. Now let's take a few moments to reflect and recap. Our reading began with David inquiring of Ziba, the servant of the deceased King Saul's household, 
whether there was any survivor of the former king's household to whom he could show God's kindness. Ziba informs him that Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, survives, but he is lame in both feet. 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3. You may remember, fellow readers, that we first met Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, and learned these important facts. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Notice, he was dropped at the hands of another. He became lame as a result of the fall. He had no leg to stand on and was crippled in both feet. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, chapter 9, verse 3, and 13. We must also remember that David made a covenant with Jonathan, whom he loved as his own soul, to show kindness to his descendants. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. When David summons Mephibosheth to meet with him, Mephibosheth fears losing his life due to the terrible way that his grandfather Saul treated David. It was often the case in neighboring nations, and on occasion later in Israel, that the entire household of a former ruler would be killed by the new administration. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 11, 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. But David explains, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7 A prophetic illustration of the gracious treatment of undeserving sinners by the greater and truer David, Jesus Christ, begins to emerge. We are all Mephibosheths. We are all thoroughly crippled as a result of the fall, without a leg to stand on, in terms of the absolute righteousness required to stand before a holy God. We were all dropped at the hands of another, Adam. In the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, we read, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Although we have inherent lameness as a result of the fall, because of a covenant made with another, David made a covenant with Jonathan. God made a covenant with his obedient servant, Jesus Christ, on behalf of believers, Kindness is guaranteed to the covenant's beneficiaries. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Romans chapter 5 verse 19. As a result of a covenant made with another, God made a covenant with Jesus Christ, the crippled grandson is adopted, placed in the king's palace to eat at the king's table, and his lost inheritance is fully restored. As Mephibosheth sits at the king's table, his lame feet are no longer in view. He is treated as if he never fell and is a member of the king's household, rather than the household of his enemy, Saul. Do you see a striking resemblance to how the repentant believer is treated? 
So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 11. Take note of the provision that is made for Saul's servant Ziba and his substantial household of fifteen sons and twenty servants. Ziba now has Mephibosheth, his former boss's grandson, as his master. He and his family are given rights to farm and to eat the bounty of King Saul's lands, which would bountifully supply the needs of both his household and the household of Mephibosheth. The Bible shows us how vulnerable human beings are. Even their best motives and intentions can be misjudged. This was the case when King David wanted to reciprocate kindness to Hanun, whose father, the king of the Ammonites, had recently died. David sent a delegation to express sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When the Israelite delegation comes to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles accuse them of spying rather than receiving their well-intentioned expression of sympathy. Hanun seized David's men, mistreated and humiliated them, spitefully shaving half of their beards and cutting off their garments at the middle at the buttocks. David tells the delegation to stay at Jericho until their beards grow back and their modest apparel could be restored. We can see how hostilities, even wars, can begin over miscommunications, misreadings, and missteps. David is rightfully angered by the treatment received. The Ammonites sense this and hire 33,000 extra soldiers to defend themselves against possible attack. David deploys his entire army of fighting men under the leadership of Joab and his brother Abishai. The troops under Joab's command would fight the Arameans, and those under Abishai's command would fight the Ammonites. Verse 11 reminds us that in the Lord's army we may have different assignments, but we are in this war together and we must be ready to support one another. Otherwise, you may win the battle, but lose the war. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 11, he said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. It's a good reminder that we need to be there for one another. David is granted victory, and the Arameans become subject to Israel, and the Aramean-Ammonite alliance was broken. Our Old Testament reading concludes with the story of David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his more honorable soldiers, Uriah. This tragedy is recorded in the Bible for our instruction. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, we read, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 11 begins with a telling statement. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It was a time when kings go out to battle. But this king did not. He was detached. He did not have his armor on. He stayed at home, and his guard was down. In the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 in the New Testament, we read, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. In David's case, idleness was the devil's playground. He was tired. He got up from his bed, and from the roof his eyes roamed, and his lust was triggered by the sight of a beautiful bathing woman. 
God knows how men and women are wired, and so does Satan, to a great extent. What started as a wayward glance became idolatry and covetousness. David was now in the service of a false god and coveted this woman he did not yet know, simply because of an image that he bowed down to and worshipped. In the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, we read, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God was providing a way of escape, but David was not interested. He sends a man to find out who the woman is. The man returns with a clear warning. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He is saying that this woman is not an object. She is not an image, a centerfold, a titillating beauty to feed your lust. She is a human being, made in the image of God, for godly relationships. She is God's creation. Furthermore, she is someone's wife and someone's daughter. She is the wife of Uriah and the daughter of Eliam. It would do us well to think of people in this light. David disregards the man's report and sends messengers to get her. His sin is involving a wider circle. He sleeps with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant, and rather than repent, David covers up and compounds his sin. He wants to make it appear that Bathsheba is pregnant with Uriah's child. But Uriah has been faithfully serving in David's army on the battlefront. David sends word to his commanding officer, Joab, to bring Uriah to him. David asks about the battle, disguising his schemes. He asked Uriah to go home and wash his feet, secretly hoping he would sleep with his wife. Uriah did not go home. He slept at the entrance of the palace. When David asked Uriah why he did not go home, Uriah's reply should have brought conviction to David of his sin. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. 2 Samuel 11.11 Uriah was demonstrating the kind of integrity that one would expect of a man of God, a leader, a king. Rather than confess his sin and get right with God, David's sin is further compounded. He could still save face and give people the illusion that the child in Bathsheba's womb was Uriah's if Uriah were to die in battle. David writes a letter with instruction for the army's commander, Joab, to put Uriah on the front line where the fighting would be the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Uriah had demonstrated such integrity that David knew that Uriah would not open the letter and read it. So Joab put Uriah in the most vulnerable position, and during the siege, Uriah was killed. When David hears the news of Uriah's death, he addresses the messenger and summarizes what he is to report back to Joab. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 25 The wages of David's sin is death, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Uriah was dead, 
Spoiler alert, the child in the womb will die shortly after birth. David's sin left Bathsheba pregnant from a one-night stand and mourning the death of her husband. He left a circle of people deceived into complicitous actions, and he himself would know God's displeasure with the grieving of the Holy Spirit. He describes his inner condition in Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. This verse describes well the condition of the soul bearing unconfessed sin. The sad saga continues tomorrow. But now let's go to the New Testament reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, when Jesus speaks of himself as the true vine. John, chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And this concludes our reading from today's portion from the New Testament, the Gospel according to John. In the Passover meal shared with the disciples, they have partaken of the fruit of the vine. Jesus uses the illustration of the vine and the branches to describe the relationship of dependence that they, his disciples, must have with him if they are to be fruitful. There is much in the Bible about Israel being a vine planted by the Lord. It proves to be a false vine, an unfaithful vine, because it fails to bring forth fruit. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, we read, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile field. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. The word of the Lord through Isaiah explains, in Isaiah 5-7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. In Psalm 80, verse 8, we read, You removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. And then in verses 15 and 16, Even the shoot from which your right hand has planted, and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, we read once again of Israel being a choice vine. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? You can read in the book of Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, how Israel is described as a luxuriant vine. However, Jesus is the true vine in contrast to the failure and degeneracy of the false vine, Israel. God his Father is the husbandman. He is sovereign over all and has ordained that the purpose of the vine is to bring forth fruit for his own glory. As Christians, we are to abide in Christ, the true vine. The Greek word for abide is meno, meaning to remain or stay put rely in a state of identification and dependence. Eternal fruit can only be brought forth through the true vine that has an eternal root in unbroken fellowship with the Father. This passage is about the faith union and resultant communion that believers have with Christ as they own Him and abide in Him as their Lord and Savior. Jesus does not say, I am the trunk of the vine and you are the branches. He is the entire vine, root, main stem, and branches altogether. He is the life of the vine. He allows us to be the means of drawing from His life and bearing the fruit of His indwelling presence. Eternal fruit requires an eternal root. If we are relying on a relationship with Christ that is anything less than knowing Him as the eternal God and our total resource, there is no possibility of producing eternal fruit. As in Christ one's, we not only have union with Christ, but we share communion. 
This is especially manifested in our relationship with Him in prayer. Jesus says, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. John chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. Now let's go to the Bible songbook, the book of Psalms, and we're reading Psalm 119, verses 49 through 64. Remember, each verse in each eight-verse section begins with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet. We will start with an eight-verse section with each verse beginning with the letter Zayin. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Now for the next eight-verse section, all verses beginning with the letter Heth. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist finds unending inspiration in God's word for his musical compositions. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Psalm 119, verse 54. The second section that we read with the eight verses all beginning with the letter Heth started with this affirmation, You are my portion, O Lord, in verse 7, and a resolve to keep God's word. Verse 63 describes the quality of fellowship we should have with our closest friends. I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. Psalm 119, verse 63. This reminds us that it is wise to choose good friends who love the Word. Now let's go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. We have a responsibility to make our plans, but at the same time, we recognize that God knows best. He is our supervisor-in-chief, and we must submit our plans to Him and be sure our works are in line with what He has called us to do. These proverbs contrast our interior life of thinking and planning with the external communication and outworking of them. We need the Lord's assistance in both areas. We are often blind to our errors, make excuses for our sins, and justify our faulty planning. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. We need God's truth filtering our thought and planning life. 
we need to trust Him for the communication and establishment of our plans. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the benefits that we receive in the new covenant of Your grace. We are all crippled Mephibosheths with no righteousness of our own to stand on, but we rejoice in our salvation that You forgive us of our trespasses and sins and we are adopted into Your family and feast at Your table where our lameness is no longer in view. Keep us alert to the ways of escape that You provide when we are tempted. We do not want to sin against You. Keep us abiding in You, loving what You love and trusting You for all that You are and have called us to do in Your strength, that the Father be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining with us today and being a part of this Bible reading community. And feel free to invite other people to subscribe to this daily podcast. You can also receive a written copy of our commentary by going to our website, newlife.org, N-E-W-L-I-F-E dot O-R-G. God bless you, and we hope that you'll be able to join with us tomorrow.